I don't want a pickle, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Okay, we're at NoCo Moto episode number four. I'm your host, Moto G Pete, and with me is Swiggy. Yo. All right, episode four. We've come yet another unexpected episode further. Who knew we'd get this far? I know it's been a long road. I certainly didn't think we would. All right. We're going to talk about anything else? We're going to go to best best bike, worst bike in the world. Best bike, worst bike. All right. As always, you're up front. You're up front. You're up first. All right. Reveal the worst bike in the world, Swiggy. The 2018 Royal Enfield Bullet 500 EFI. Oh, my gosh. What a turd. <laughs> exactly. So let's... Uh, Let's just dissect this real quick. Mm-hmm. Some base stats here. Thing costs $5,000. Which on the surface seems cheap. It does. But you're not getting a lot for not a lot of money. <laughs> no, you are not. Okay, so it's... a. Let's see. It's... Uh, yeah, so it's 27 horsepower. Mm-hmm. And it's not a lot of torque. It's about 30 foot-pounds of torque. So this couldn't pull a drunk off your sister. Well, the torque is kind of respectable for, you know, something out of the 1920s. Um, (laughs) Well, here's the thing. It's a 500cc single. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, it's a new engine. I'd also like to point out that they're now boasting uh, unit construction. Right. You know, yeah, something we the, caught on to in, what, the 50s? Before that, I'm sure. Yeah. So, if you look at the horsepower numbers and the torque numbers, mm-hmm. factor in the maintenance interval and the overall reliability. What's the maintenance interval? It's 3,000 kilometers, so it's every 2,000 miles. That's still terrible. Yeah. Okay, so the service interval is about 2,000 miles, 3,000 kilometers. This is marginally better than the 1,000 to 1,500 miles on my CB350. Realistically, your CB350 in its state is pretty competitive with this brand new. Right. That That's kind of what you're buying. So on the face of it, $5,000 for a brand new motorcycle. Not bad. But when you look at the details, it gets a little ridiculous. Right. You're paying $5,000 for a motorcycle that hates you. Right. Now, here's the thing, like, when you look at this bike, how hard would it really be to make it much better? Especially when you look at, you know, what the, uh, what, like, the WR450F is doing. It's a 450cc single, and it's making 60 horsepower with 45 foot-pounds of torque. I don't even need it to make more power. It's supposed to be, you know the updated version of the classic that they made, which I think was the longest running production motorcycle ever. And it, it it's an update of that. So this thing's got electric start, right? And kick, or is it still just kick? Electric start and kick. Okay. So it's supposed to give you fuel injection, reliability and kick, but I, I would have, I would have settled and called this bike a huge success. 
if they had just machined it correctly and it didn't leak like crazy. If all it did was simply fix the issues with the old one, I could accept the the low power. I could accept all of it. I could accept the tiny tweaks they did in the styling, which I don't know, I'm not super cool with, but whatever, I could accept it. I could accept the horrible ride, the bad suspension. I could accept, you know, all the shake, all the rattle. I could even deal with the horrible handling and all of it if it just simply worked reliably, which it doesn't. Right. So here's the other thing. When you look at this bike, it's beautiful and that's it. That's true. But there's just, it's acceptable that the Grom only does 65 miles an hour because it's a 125. It's a 175, isn't it? It's a 125. Okay. Now you do have to ring it wide open to do that. But this is an engine built in. 2018 that redlines around 5500 rpms right now how hard would it be to to give it a slightly shorter stroke a slightly larger bore up the compression from 8.3 to nine and a half or to ten keep the same torque and get it up to 35 horsepower how hard would that be I don't know. I mean, yeah, call it the Bullet 750. It's got an electric starter, so you don't have to kick it over. No, don't even bump it up to 750. Just up the compression a little bit. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing, is they've done some very questionable things with this bike. Uh huh. In particular, the engine is a stressed member, which I think the only reason they did it was because they were so excited that they had a unit construction engine. Right. That there was finally a possibility, and they just went wild. Yeah, there's or no the equivalent... need for it to be a stress member, because the frame is largely identical to the old one, I think. Pretty much. Now, here's the thing. Still a single down tube, right? Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. This would be an excellent motorcycle, and I would even... I would even put it up for best motorcycle in the world this week if it kept the same torque and made a little more horsepower and if they just in the if the price was four thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I still can't go there because it's like it's worse than Chinese quality. It's worth no amount of money as it is. If it was just machined correctly. You could, I'd be happy to pay six for it, six and a half, no problem. You know, I guess it's a small enough market that they'd only have to produce a few and people would just hang on to them for a really long time. I mean, realistically, the only thing this had to compete against was the SR400, which was also a colossal failure, and it lost to the failure that is the SR400. That's another bike we should talk about at some point. <laughs> It was so close. What? Yeah, so close, but so far off. Right. So now here's the other thing. Okay. The fuel injection. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Right. And the reason is the biggest market for this bike is in India. Right. And in India, you have large, luxurious metropolitan areas that very quickly devolve into 
thousands of miles of dirt roads mm-hmm. and villages without electricity. Yes. Now, the reason they have a huge attachment to these kinds of bikes is, first of all, the Royal Enfield name has a lot of history in India. Yes. And on top of that, they're generally very easy to fix. There's not a lot going on with them. And it's something that a uh, that a, sh- the, a shop in some remote village that may or may not have working lights yeah can take apart and put back together and if you're going in between those two worlds it's excellent i imagine your average indian housewife can disassemble one of the carburetors off those things blindfolded like a marine and reassemble it in seconds (laughs) for sure but now you've taken this amazingly simple thing that had that's you know really selling itself on heritage, uh-huh. and now you've put an electric fuel injector on it that in most places of the world is not a user serviceable part. Yes, but you know they've got to be able to sell it here. You know, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's even like still just a carbed version in India. Oh, there is there is a carbed version. Well, there you go. Right, but you know what you're getting. But they couldn't sell this as you know carbed in the U.S., you know especially getting? not with emissions. Um, I believe you still can. Well, you definitely can in America. Well, no, because you got to meet California. Exactly. Otherwise, it's not. That's worth why it. the EFI. That makes sense. Yeah. You also get an astounding one extra horsepower out of it. Ooh. <laughs> well, hold on. No, because having ridden an actual Bullet 500, there's no way that thing's making more than 13 horsepower. There's no way in hell. It's not doing a lot. I mean, I got one once up to 61 miles an hour. Literally, so it had, um, it didn't have the full double seat on it. It was one of the military models, so it's got just the sprung sprung saddle and then the sprung um, square saddle behind. So at first, I just sat on the rear saddle in full gear, full tuck, wide open on dead flat road with someone behind me on um, on a Road King, and we reckoned that... His speedo read like about 64. And of course, my speedo was reading anywhere between 47 and 83 miles per hour, (laughs) given given exactly what moment you would want to take a picture with your camera. But we so we figured we I was probably doing an honest 61 miles an hour. And this took about a mile and a half of just wide open throttle adjusting into a tighter and tighter and tighter tuck. And that was the best it would do on dead flat ground. So I don't think, you know, this, the extra one horsepower, I mean, maybe this is, this is not even making the 26 horsepower it claims, you know, it's not right. So you might be able to, twenty ones probably the actual what you'll get out of this. Maybe you'll hit like sixty three miles per hour. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I don't. Know you cannot really take this on the highway. You can't. It's too dangerous. You'd be more comfortable taking a Grom on the highway. Yes, yes, absolutely. You would. 
I don't care if this meets the engine size to be legal on the highway. This is straight up dangerous on the highway. So right there in America, it loses half its practicality right off the bat. Right. I feel like it's trying to be authentic in ways that just don't matter. Like having a shitty motor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this thing, this thing is like big hipster mana. That's, that's the only thing it offers rather than going out and trying to make some weird cafe build or buy an actual classic bike and restore it for less money. You can buy one of these new and for maybe half the summer have no problems riding it. And everyone thinks you're super cool. Just keep in mind when I was riding around that actual bullet 500 once I was in a grocery store parking lot and this hipster with his handlebar mustache and a scarf around his neck and every, I mean, everything you could imagine. Every trope possible. Every trope possible. I'm getting off the bike and as he's coming by, he turns to me and he goes, hey man, cool cafe racer. And I wanted to slap the shit out of him (laughs) because the Bullet 500 and this are as far away from a cafe racer as you can get. The bike was fully stock. It was not performance tuned in any way. There was nothing removed. And it's just, it's not that kind of bike. This is what a cruiser was in 1950s Britain. Right. This is, this is in philosophy as far away as you can get from a cafe bike. But yet, that's sort of the the feeling and the emotion it conjures up in the idiots that buy this. How, however few of them there are. It's like some douchebag walking up to somebody getting out of a Porsche 911 Carrera and saying, Hey man, sweet muscle car. Right. <laughs> well, except that the 911 is legitimately fast. This yeah. is not. All right. Okay, so let's move on now to the best bike in the world. Oh, I'm excited. Okay, this is pretty good. So, following last week's worst bike in the world, along the same lines. So, in the late 70s, Craig Vetter and the Vetter Corporation sponsored a race team. And they were racing Kawasaki KZ-1000s. Already some people are going to know where I'm going with this. So last week we discovered how the KZ-1000 was basically ruined. Well, someone else, a year later, had another crack at it with amazing success. So, it is the 1980 Vetter Mystery Ship. You gotta do the drum roll. Oh, shit, I missed the drum roll. We'll We'll insert it later. No, we won't. Anyway, so the 1980 Vetter Mystery Ship. So this was a 1979-1980 KZ-1000, same frame as the last bike, except that the frame was shipped off to a um, to the to the shop where they made and modified the frames for the super bikes that were part of the Craig Vetter Racing Team. So anything unnecessary, all the tabs and brackets that weren't needed were cut off. It was strengthened and reinforced. It had a four to one Yosh put on it. Yeah, there you go. It looks like Darth Vader started doing coke and listening to Flock of Seagulls. It's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um, 
So yeah, the frame was strengthened, all that. Um, it had new rear suspension, which was moved into a decent, uh, a better position. It had a new steering headstock put on it. So this instantly transformed it from like the worst handling bike in the world into something that was one of the best handling bikes at the time. Right? Mag wheels were put on, so the the suspension could be upgraded without destroying the wheels. The bodywork is all in two pieces. There's a little front fairing that moves seamlessly into a tank and rear uh, fairing section. This thing has a six-gallon fuel tank. It's amazing. Um, And then, if you wanted to... So I made 75 horsepower, just the regular KZ-1000 engines, what's in it. But if you wanted to, you could get it tuned up. So stage one was like 101 horsepower, stage two, 108, stage three, 116. Stage four, there are no numbers on. That was when you got into seriously expensive territory because the downside is... Was it the option of like, here are the prices for stage one, two, and three. For stage four, get in touch with us. Well, following the disaster of the Z1 RTC... Vetter was like, okay, if we're going to make a turbo version of this, we're going to consult with some real turbo people and have a specific unit made for it for whatever you need. Now, I think there were only two models ever made turbo because there were only 10 ever made. This this um, This was the R1M of its time. This was, you know, the RC 51. This was a racing superbike you could just buy. So Craig Vetter was having these things made, you know, from his company, they would buy uh, these bikes and then have them modified. The issue really is, is that they, um, well, because it needed Craig's oversight. So he had a hang gliding accident in late 1980 and couldn't oversee it because he's this really, really hands-on guy. And so they were going to make several hundred of them. And who knows, there might have been other versions later. But after he was done with this hang gliding accident, he got into all the um, the streamlining stuff that he's still into today. But for one snapshot in time, someone actually took the KZ-1000 and unlike the Z1RTC, made a really funky, crazy, beautiful, out-of-this-world thing out of it. It's a lot like the... Um, like the katana that came out at the time. It's very similar. Um, but this is just even rarer. Now, the downside to this was the money. In 1980s money, this sold for about what they cost still today. This has not lost a cent in value and has kept with inflation. It was $9,000 in 1980, and they're somewhere between, like, somewhere around $25,000 as a collector bike now. So, you know, take the inflation and all of that. This has not lost a cent. It has been a battleship stock, because that's how fucking cool it is. It's the best bike in the world. It's an actual 70s bike with good braking, with good handling, with distinct styling. It's not UJM. It's track ready. It's fast. It's rare. It's a conversation piece. I think it looks amazing. 
So what have they done differently with the brakes? So the brakes are the, still the single, single pistons with yeah, the double pistons. discs um, and the rear disc in the back. And they're still the same discs, but they put some sort of crazy brake pads in them, some sort of different brake pad material that I'm not aware of, like what that was. And that helped out a lot, apparently. Okay. I don't know exactly how, but again, yeah, you got the Yosh 401, so it's lighter, um, you know, and it's Craig Vetter, so you know the ergonomics, the the um, the 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 aerodynamics, and all that stuff is on point. The this is such a trivial thing, but it adds so much character and it's so weird. I've never seen it before. Oh, the recessed headlight, the recessed in the front? square '80s headlight with like the rocket ship fairing poking out either side of it. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. There's nothing else like it. And it's got this weird, like, swoopy gas tank with this really angular darting front fairing. Oh, it's also got an oil cooler in it, too, which is an improvement over the KZ-1000. I mean, this this bike looks like what somebody in the 50s thought motorcycles would look like in, in 2000, the, in, 2000. <laughs> in the distant future year 2000 motorcycles will look like the mystery ship yeah so i don't know i you know i defy people to hate it i defy them i know the styling might not be for everyone much like the original katana but i think it's gorgeous i think it's so striking in a bizarre way well there are plenty of bikes that i think are ugly but I think nail their own aesthetic and go for their own character in a big way. And that I think for the people who are into that are absolutely excellent bikes. You know, when I so said I don't it, think oh. you even have to be into this to appreciate how crazy it is and how weird and awesome it is. Now, there's another little aspect to it, too, that doesn't always occur to everyone. But, you know, when I said it's like Darth Vader started doing coke and listening to Flock of Seagulls, well, he also started reading manga because it's got a little bit of that Buzoku style to it. Oh, the Bosozuku well. style? Oh, Bosozuku. That's it. Yeah. It's got a little Bosozuku in it. Not a whole lot, but just a little bit. The way that fairing just brings the whole front of it up in its look. Yeah absolutely wonderful so so there you go if you don't have a mystery ship which basically no one does you're not on the best bike in the world and i'm sorry for you <laughs> and we are back we had a major scare thinking that we lost all of episode three but you don't care because you've probably already listened to it we hope you've already listened to it anyway Oh, man, if you're trying to start a podcast, have backups. Backups of your backups don't screw around. For sure. Yeah, that was... Fortunately, Swiggy's IT knowledge and computer magicry uh, enabled us to save that episode. So you've still heard it, but we have to do all the editing again. Oh, man, what a nightmare. Okay, so... What are we going to talk about now? Right, so I want to talk about a combination of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a combo topic here. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about technology on bikes that need to die. Which there's a lot of. And combine that with, on a new retro, such mm -hmm. as 
<coughs> such as the, uh, the the new triumph, the Hinkley Triumph Bonneville. Yep. And uh, kind of the, the Indian Scout. And really, uh-huh. this kind of applies to Harleys as well, to a large degree. Uh-huh. <coughs> so what does a bike need to have to be kind of an authentic retro-styled bike? And what modern features can you put on it? My, yeah, my, oh. my opinion is whatever you like, pretty much. Yeah, my thinking is really you don't... Okay, if you're going for, like, authentic, authentic, authentic vintage, you know, you're never going to get it with a new bike. So it's sort of like why even try? Just sort of try to capture the spirit a little bit because where does the rabbit hole end? These old bikes are crazy unreliable and you can't live with them. So they proved with the SR 400 that really going back in time with the technology is a bad idea. and No one wants it. So we already know all you guys out there trying to get something that you can buy new. That's just like having a bike in the good old days is not realistic and you don't want it anyway. So, Going from there, what do you really need? And again, what is even vintage, right? I've got a 93, or is it 94? Whatever, one of those two. ZX6 Ninjas. It's technically vintage now, okay? So how vintage do you really want to go? So you've got to be 1960s vintage. For some reason, the 60s and and mid-70s seems to be the era that everyone holds sacred. That's what they're going for. If you're not that, then it doesn't really figure in as vintage, even though, like, you know, an 88 Nighthawk is totally vintage. Right. So I don't think you need old technology to be a neo-retro bike. As long as you, as long as the bike really captures the spirit, then, then you're good to go. So having said that, there's a couple bikes on the market right now that I think really capture what a neo retro should be. Um, my two personal favorites, I think, are the Harley Roadster and the now defunct uh, Victory Octane. But mm. you know, it's open to debate. Well, I the RS, um, not the 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 Z nine hundred RS also is another killer bike in this category. And guess what? None of these bikes have 60s technology in them they've all got something new one way or another the harley to a lesser degree but that's still at least you know a lot of 80s and 90s technology in there yeah and the suspension's really modern the brakes are really modern so everyone that wants to complain about there not being kick starts and and not having huge air fins or carburetors i think you're a little misled in your thinking yeah, so right now we're staring at an Indian Scout. Mm-hmm. First of all, the uh, it's got the same kind of shape. It's got the rear fender and the front fender. That's that classic Indian style that very much speaks to that era. Even though this isn't really an Indian. Right. But at the same time, it's liquid-cooled and it's got a giant radiator on the front. Right doesn't detract from the look at all no and then you know i'm just gonna go out and come out and say it liquid cooled engines on display look fucking cool yeah they do 
they, they've come a long way, especially because the one on this, the, the, the Indian Scouts deep, dark secret is that it's just a victory octane. It, th- this is so not an Indian. It's so not authentic, actually, in any way, shape, or form. It just has the Indian logo on it. This is a Victory Octane. They took the motor out of the Octane, and they just put different castings on the outside. Otherwise, this is a Victory bike. It might have a slightly different frame, but really, that's what this thing is. And so they've stylized it to give it more of the Indian brand look because Polaris is really trying to move away from victory. Now they've killed it and they're going with this. So, yeah, okay. It doesn't have fins on it. So what? There's still all sorts of other cool shit on display here. So what's the big problem? Right. And, you know, I don't think it really detracts unless you're trying to... Unless you're going for a look that tricks somebody into thinking it's this perfectly restored, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s motorcycle, which you'll never do. Right. Unless the person's an idiot, in which case, who cares? Mm -hmm. Then why not just free yourself from those ridiculous limitations and get some nice features and still be faithful to the overall vision of that style of bike from that era. Yeah. Which exactly. I think is exactly what the Octane does. Yeah. The Octane, I think it's wonderful. I think it's super cool. It's a shame that people didn't buy these bikes enough and Polaris had to quit on them. Well, no, Polaris didn't have to quit on them. They just did because they're assholes. This bike is a cruiser. And it's not afraid to be from the 21st century, but it's still got a classic cruiser look in a lot of ways. Also, I just want to interject and say, fuck you, Polaris, for constantly filling up every bike garage with recalls on your shitty four-wheelers every fucking spring, making it impossible (laughs) for me to get work done on my bike. Thanks. Yeah, this bike has... Really, every you know creature comfort you'd want from this sort of mid-level cruiser, and has badass modern performance. This thing is legitimately fast. Seventy-something foot-pounds of torque, a hundred and something horsepower, hundred and seven horsepower, and seventy-three foot-pounds of torque. Yeah, this thing will get up and go like a at least like a late nineties, early two thousand sport bike, and it's a cruiser. It looks cool. It's mean and aggressive, but it's also, you know, the shape of a classic cruiser. There's nothing super. I feel like the the, the classic cruiser is a little less sacred than the UJMs are when people are thinking about an older style bike. Right. You know, if you want to think about some of the other stuff Victory did that was definitely not in the classic style, people freaked out a little bit, but it wasn't. It wasn't seen as this affront to styling and and everything like that. Everyone thought, well, they're a bit kooky and offbeat or whatever. And they only thought they were offbeat because they didn't go for a super classic look. Like the Japanese do when they put out a bike that's imitating Harley. And all Harley ever wants to do is try to trick people into thinking their bikes are exactly the same as they were in the 50s. Which they're way not. But, you know, heritage, tradition, all that stuff that Harley's all about, that's what they do. So the cruiser market has remained a lot less changed stylistically than other categories of bikes. But 
Victory managed to, you know, change it up a little bit in a really interesting way. And they were the perfect Neo Retro bike. Mm -hmm. But they're no longer with us. So. Well, you can get an Octane. You just have to go to the Indian dealer. Yeah, I guess (laughs) there's still a couple of them for sale. And I think, you know, you should pick them up. But because you can probably use Indian parts on this motor. I can almost guarantee it. There's a good chance. Well, also you're uh, you're guaranteed, I believe, another nine years of parts support. There you go. Ride the hell out of it for the next nine years, man. Go for it. You can put sixty thousand miles on it in that amount of time. Go for it. And there's steel too. I think right now, what are they? Ten thousand dollars for one of these? Uh, it depends where you go um, and what they're trying to do with them. Because I know a lot of the stock on the showroom floor is not technically owned by the dealer a lot mm-hmm. of them are out on they're basically kind of renting them for a very small amount of time for a very small fee and then they're just kind of costing them money until they get sold a lot of them got returned some of them are hanging on to them and trying to sell them um this is kind of how it works uh but yeah i imagine there's still quite a lot of them sitting around waiting to be sold and at some point you're going to be able to get you'll be able to pick one of these up for a pretty good deal all right i want to get into what everyone most people agree is the ultimate neo retro right now the triumph bonneville yep so again this is not a triumph just like the scouts not an indian at least hinkley triumph is a really cool company and they built the they 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 set up shop right where old triumph was right outside of birmingham and you know they're a great company because well my favorite story about them is when the whole factory burned down and they didn't lay off a single person they said hey you're not in manufacturing you're in construction for the next six months and they rebuilt the whole place not firing a single person and the company has actually put out a bunch of super iconic bikes already. So they came back in what, 94, 92, somewhere around there. Around there. Yeah. And since then we've had the street triple, we've had all the Daytonas, the new Bonneville, the uh, Thruxton, the Thruxton, uh, the rocket three, the rocket three. I love the rocket three, <sighs> the, um, the new tigers, the, the adventure bikes, a whole bunch of models that are more iconic than the original triumph. So yeah. we always say Hinkley triumph, not triumph to make the distinction. Cause I actually think Hinkley triumph is a cooler company than triumph ever was, mm-hmm. but there you go. Anyway. So this bike, we all know it's been out for what? Like almost 10 years now. Uh, closer to 15, maybe 16 years. There we go. Came out right after the W650 did. People love these. And so right off the bat, this bike did away with one thing. And this is one of the things that's made it a success, I think, is it did away with carburetors. This is technology that needs to die and you don't need on your Neo Retro bike. There's not many, but there's still a few stupid bikes being sold that are carbureted. Why? They are unreliable, they're not fuel efficient, they're high on maintenance even when they are working. And you know what? You know, we all know on the Triumph they have the fake carburetors, right? They they're fuel injectors and they've put, you know, a housing around them that makes them look like carburetors. But fuel injectors look cool too. They sit in the exact same spot. Right. You know? Yeah, and I 
I I want to critique the the fake carburetors because you know it it is fuel injected and good on them for that. But you know what, your bike shouldn't lie. No, it shouldn't lie. But yeah, I agree. Fuel injectors look cool. You can put fuel injectors in plain sight, and it's fine. And in fact, it looks great. No, nobody should be putting the. I mean, you know, after a certain point, you're not going to be able to keep fooling people. And Triumph Hinkley has actually done a pretty good job with the Bonneville of fooling a lot of people. But, you know, it always just leads to disappointment after the fact. Yeah. You know, at that moment of realization, all the magic is gone, and it's just disappointment. So Yeah, they, they would score huge points with me if they just dropped the fake carburetors and made it a little bit more honest. Because, you know... Uh, what if they got rid of the air cooling and just put a radiator on the front? Or maybe they even go with like some sort of hybrid strategy. You know, just kept the fins for cosmetics to some degree, but just put a radiator on the front, mm-hmm. made it liquid cooled. You could probably get some decent extra power out of it, up the compression ratio a bit, and get a lot more performance for not a lot of extra weight. For me, it's the it's the reliability and the lifespan of the motor. When you're paying this much, because these things are a little overpriced, because you know they've been the it bike for quite a while. Right. The, um, you know, I, I it's not the kind of bike that needs a huge amount of power. It's not supposed to be fast. It's just not that kind of bike. So, it's it's about reliability. It's about it being modern. You know, I don't want an old Triumph. I want a new Triumph. I want a Hinkley Triumph. And this one's stuck in the past a little bit as compared to other bikes that they make. I'm glad they make this. I think this is a design that's so iconic, it'll never leave us. Mm-hmm. The overall, you know, straight flat seat, you know, the the the, the double down tube frame, the the twin the twin motor even though it's not you know the 650 motor anymore never even really was with these things was it no so the classic handlebars the the forks with the gaiters on them those those fenders the the headlight uh, the turn signals on the stems the analog gauges everything about it or have they gone to digital gauges yet i don't believe so there you go this will never leave us. Like we don't have to worry that this will be lost. It won't. So it's okay to do a couple little things to it. You can make it liquid cool and you can put a radiator on it because we're not going to go away from this. People love this too much. And you can put ABS on it. Right. Additionally, this bike is super iconic and it's not going to go away until at least we're dead because you know, if you talk to me, if you asked me to draw a motorcycle when mm-hmm. I was seven years old, this is basically the motorcycle that I would draw. Right. Like this is this was just generic motorcycle to seven year old me. Mm-hmm. It's not going to go anywhere for a long time, and I think it's okay to modernize it a bit, add some nice features that won't really detract from the overall look. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, moving on to other things that really need to die. In a few special cases like this, you can keep it around, but dual rear shock suspension really needs to go as well. 
Yes. Okay, I'll give the Bonneville the pass, although I shouldn't, but I'm going to give it the pass anyway. But in an era where even Harley Davidson has figured out that a single mono rear shock is the way to go, way too many people are still doing the twin rear shocks. There's no way you can get both those shocks to be exactly perfect. This is why monoshocks are better. They only ever used monoshocks because of metallurgy, and you couldn't really get one single shock that was going to do the whole job. Mm-hmm. Now they can. So you put one great big fat stonking monoshock in the back of it, and guess what? The bike's balanced in the rear perfectly because it's centered. Or now they're even so good, Ducati's like putting them way off to one side of the frame. Well, it doesn't matter. It only has to operate in one dimension. So there's no way for it as long as... As long as the frame's stiff enough. As long as the frame's stiff enough and the uh, the swing arm is aligned properly with the frame, it can only move... The bike can only move in the direction that the swing arm hinges in. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You could have it diagonally from corner to corner across the subframe and... And the and the swing arm doesn't matter, right? You know this has been possible on cruisers, even heavy bikes, since the Virago. It was what eighty four for the Virago, yeah, maybe even eighty two. So this is not new stuff that we're saying like, oh, well, you know, all these new super sport bikes, all these modern things of mono shocks. No, this has been around for a while, and we're saying everybody get with the program. You know, uh, one of the best. Neo retro bikes on the market, the Z900 RS, mono shock in the rear. Hey, you can't tell me that bike doesn't have a fantastic retro look to it. Right, it totally does. So you don't need the twin uh, mono shocks to pull off the look, not at all. You could make a new a new Bonneville, or you know, make something called the Bonneville Two. That has all this stuff on it. And you can keep this old one around for those that really, really want it. But I'm pretty sure if you put out a Bonneville 2 that was liquid-cooled, so it had a radiator, and it had a monoshock, and it had just wasn't afraid to have fuel injectors, people would buy it, and people would love it more. You know? I agree. I mean, if you really break down the look of this bike, what are the real core components because people will always say like, oh, it's, you know, it's the, it's the naked look with the side covers and the flat seat and the round, the teardrop tank and the wire wheels. But in reality, chrome fenders. Uh, yeah. And the chrome fenders, but it's the chrome fenders. It's the massive chrome silencers with the two and two into two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know the gap in the middle underneath the the fake carburetors yeah <laughs> um it's the single headlight with no fairing over it right um and the dash but what if you had steel wheels like proper steel wheels with a mono shock and the EFI on display and a digital dash and an LED headlight 
how much would it really suffer? I, I think you would honestly be able to pick that bike out and recognize it as a Triumph Bonneville very easily. I don't think that really detracts from it. I agree 100%. So, <clears throat> what else on these things that are, you know really needs to die? I think especially on a lot of the more underpowered bikes, HID and incandescent headlights need to go. Yeah, yeah. There's no excuse for these not being just super bright LED lights now. Well, not only that, but especially if you go back to the, uh, if you look at the 2018 Royal Enfield Bullet 500. Oh, it's the worst light it's a in bike, the world. It's a bike making 27 horsepower. And it has a 60-watt headlamp. Like, yeah. How much strain is that putting on the stator? I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous. It's more than ridiculous. At idle, it loses power. If you're below 2,000 RPM, your battery's draining. Right. You wouldn't accept this on a car, and you wouldn't accept this on any new bike, except for this 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 Royal Enfield, apparently. But no one's buying them, so they don't even accept it there. <laughs> right i i'm gonna be getting you know i'm doing a bunch of work pretty soon to my ninja and there it for like 50 or 60 dollars there's an led kit for the front lights you know just plug it in it goes you know adapts in and it's just fine and i'm absolutely going to do that because guess what the type of light is not important you know for the authenticity to me being able right. to see is a lot more important to me that's a higher priority right yeah, so and there's a few bikes even being put out that are still sealed beam. Sealed beam. This hasn't been standard on cars since the 70s. This is unexcusable. Unexcusable. Inexcusable. Inexcusable. Whatever. I've been drinking. <laughs> Inexcusable. You can't do it. Uh, a sealed beam headlight is like. A mag light provides more light. That's all you need to say. The The lights in your home are more powerful. You wouldn't just take a bedside lamp and stick it to the front of your bike and go down the road. But that's what you're doing with sealed beam. You know, and the halogen and all that stuff is a little bit of an upgrade. It's a mid, but the LEDs are the way to go. I spent $50 on an LED light for that CB350. It wasn't a fantastic LED, but it was a lot better than the sealed beam that was on it originally. That's for mm -hmm. sure. And when I sold it, I was like, hey, take the LED light with you. I've got the original housing, but take this because this is what you actually want on the front of it. Mm -hmm. Plus, it uses hardly any power. So that's more you can do to charge your gadgets and this and that and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. LED. Everything else needs to die. What else we got on that list? Uh, drum brakes. Oh my god! Yeah, there are still, still in 2018, some stupid bikes being sold with rear drums. Why? Why? I, how can it even be cheaper to do drum brakes anymore? I don't know. The I... the only thing I can think of is there are a bunch of like Southeast Asian companies with uh, countries that are buying bikes that have so there's still a little bit of an economy of scale of making them, and for whatever reason the manufacturers can't rip off this band aid and just accept 
that you know it won't be quite as profitable for one year or so while they're switching over to just only making disc brakes because mm-hmm. there's more metal involved there's more material involved in making a drum brake well even if it is more expensive to make a, a rear disc brake than to have a rear drum it's just not excuse it's totally inexcusable now think about it cuz with a rear disc you can undo one bolt pull the caliper up and inspect your brake pads right you can uh, you know what the state of what the state of it is whether mm-hmm. it's in good condition whether it needs to be replaced what kind of maintenance you need to do it it's all exposed with a drum brake how much do you have to go through to take that thing apart to inspect it and especially yeah. and especially with brakes it's one of those things where it can be very difficult to actually notice that your brakes are starting to wear out because you know it wears out that 0.01% every time you ride the bike and you get used to it mm-hmm. and it, and your perception of the bike recalibrates with it as it gradually wears down and it's really hard to tell and really notice when you can just say Okay, these brakes aren't very good right now. Unless you do some sort of objective test to try and see how good they are. It's it's really hard. I flat out refuse to touch drum brakes anymore. And I'll tell you why. First of all, yeah, the whole wheel's got to come off and all that sort of nonsense, which isn't the biggest deal in the world. But the last, not the last time, but the last two times I've opened up drum brakes, they were from older bikes and I didn't realize that they were asbestos brakes. <laughs> and yeah, and all that powder came out as soon as I took the thing apart and just little pins and needles in my skin. And it was, all, and I only got the tiniest bit on me before I realized what I was dealing with. And it was hell for like a week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, it's asbestos. Like, oh my God, I'm putting a rag over my face and oh, it, oh, I won't do it anymore. I will not. If you, if you've got a bike from the seventies, you know, even the eighties or a Royal Enfield from like 2002, cause guess what? They were still putting asbestos brakes in those fuckers. Don't open that thing up without, you know, really taking some precautions first. Yeah, so I just won't even touch them because if it's old enough to have drum brakes, I don't even know what kind of brake pads they put in it and from what sketchy country they got this, the stuff from. No, not going to do it. That so actually those kind of explains why they're cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else that needs to die? Um, oh, lots of things. Well, we've already done carburetors. Um, down tube frames. No. With the exception of cruisers. I, I'm gonna say we can keep down two frames. It's that's fine. I think it is. It is kind of iconic with the early unit construction engines, like the parallel twins in the Bonneville, and to some degree, you know the CB350. We we can hold on to them. Okay. Because what, what's the alternative? Having these little bikes that are fairly cheap and then trusting the engine to be a stressed member in the frame like what what what's the alternative because you can't have a motor like the like the parallel twin out of a bonneville what you're gonna put that in a twin spar 
Like, what are you going to do? Why can't you put it in a twin spar? They got an inline four across the uh, all the the sport bikes and the Z nine hundred RS. That's not even well. That's a trellis. Mm, I don't know. I feel like on a naked bike that would look weird, especially with the teardrop tank. Again, and the, the Z nine hundred RS doesn't look weird. No, but it doesn't have the flat straight line under the tank. It doesn't have that. Yeah, it does. I'm gonna have to pull one up. Yeah, pull it up. It's it's a misleading bike. It you think it's got a down tube frame on it at first. It captures the look so well, but what it captures is the essential elements of those UJM bikes and leaves everything else behind. I'm absolutely in love with this thing. At first glance, it really does seem like it's got, but it doesn't. It's a trellis frame. It's wonderful. You know, it's got the uh, the stitched leather seat that's flat and the teardrop tank and the, the exposed naked single headlight. It's got the gauges, the handlebars, everything. It just simply doesn't have that little tube going down the front. That's it. Otherwise, you know, and even that outline that's sort of made by the frame or would have been made by the frame on the old ones is made by that beautiful exhaust that's coming down in front of it. And that's really still giving you that shape on it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, we don't need down tube frames anymore. I think they're good for cruisers, but anything else, I have no interest in it. That is interesting because it doesn't actually lose the lines of the bike because when you have the oil cooler... Or the when you have the the radiator there, and then you have the headers f- continuing on underneath, you're keeping the same general lines. Exactly. Yeah. Look, Man, maybe you still right. got the side covers on the side, and everything. It's it's got all the essential elements. This is the ultimate neo retro bike, because this incorporates all of the new technology. Hmm. Okay, I stand corrected. It's proof that you can do it. That's what I say. You know, we don't need these old twin shocks. You don't need the down tube frame and you don't need it to be air cooled. This bike proves it and it nails the look better than many of these Neo Retro bikes. It's a continuation of a famous name and a famous model, you know, and it's the same Kawasaki that made them in 1972. So this really does have pedigree and heritage behind it, much more than the Hinkley Triumph or the Polaris Indian. Why wouldn't you go with this? This is going to be reliable. It's powerful. It's a little pricey. I don't know why this couldn't come in at a a similar price to the regular Z900. That's a little squirrely. I don't see anything on here that really makes it more expensive because the same frame as the Z900 this year. As far as I'm aware, it's just a little custom package to make it retro. It's detuned a little bit. Um, so I don't know why it warrants that much more money. I mean, it's like two and a half to three thousand dollars more money. Yeah, that's a little that's a little weird. Yeah, just for that special tank, I don't get it. That headlight can't be more expensive than the weird, you know, alien headlight on the regular Z nine hundred. Mm-hmm. So what's going on with that? We want an answer, Kawasaki, and we expect it by tomorrow morning. 
you know? Uh, this thing's got... Oh, um, there's no excuse anymore for any of these bikes not to have double front disc brakes. Yes. What the hell is going on here? There's nothing unclassic about having double front discs. Are mm-hmm. you kidding me? Single discs is stupid. Except in the case of Buell. The, they, they proved that those were still good functioning brakes. But for the most part, for anything outside of Buell, I don't want to see anything being made over 45 horsepower without double front discs. Well, here's the other thing is that <clears throat> even if you don't have a lot of power and you're thinking, oh, I don't need to brake hard. I'm not taking this to the track. If you're coming down uh, 70 East out of the mountains yeah, and you're going downhill at a six percent downgrade uh-huh for 40 miles oh yeah those brakes need- are gonna get hot right you don't need dual front brake discs just for a sporty bike that you take into the track it's something that is true that's really practical especially when you consider the fact that if you double the surface area you're going to reduce the wear yeah and it's a longer service interval yeah it's a practical thing to have it's not i mean it may be a more expensive upfront cost but it's totally practical and it's value yeah and i'm not even worried about them being radially mounted that's that's really just for show but simply having the two discs counts for a lot and everything should have a disc in the rear also there we go what else is still on our list oh this is a big one. Mm-hmm. Sprung saddles. Oh my God, sprung saddles. Now, I don't know really, besides Royal Enfield, anyone that's so insane that they're still making bikes out of the factory like this, but this is a dumb one because where I live up in Greeley, you still see a lot of guys buying cruisers and putting a sprung saddle for the seats, like taking the perfectly safe comfortable seat off their harley or metric cruiser or whatever and putting a sprung saddle on if you've ever ridden a sprung saddle there's this thing that happens every once in a while where you're turning but you hit a little bump in the road and the bike goes left while your ass goes to the right and it's extremely unnerving it scares the shit out of you You're not connected to the motion of the bike. It's just flat out dangerous. And I don't think there's been a legitimate purpose for putting a sprung saddle on a bike since World War II, maybe? Thereabouts, Uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Does Ural still do the sprung saddle? I don't know. And if you're buying a Neepner, well, you've you've got even... Well, you don't need to worry about the sprung saddle on one of those Neepners because it's not even going to move. So I'm, not, you know, I feel like there's there shouldn't be anything <clears throat> over ten horsepower in classic that warrants a sprung saddle. Well, there's no reason to ever have a sprung saddle. Just you know, when when they were making bikes with a lot of you know rigid rear frames, okay, it made it a little bit more comfortable. But we've figured out rear suspension now, as already discussed, and why twin rear shocks need to go away. Right. So there you go. Um, It's a liability and, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't even look good. 
it's not like it looks bad, but again, it's this idea of chasing this idea of authenticity in these small, outdated details and not really going after what are the core aspects of these older bikes, right? No one's complaining that their brand new Ford Mustang has fuel injection. No one's complaining that it has modern brakes. No one's complaining about the power. No one's complaining about the reliability. No one's complaining about the suspension. They're perfectly happy to have this new version of a Mustang or a Camaro or whatever else car is being you know brought up to date for today. So why is there this idea in motorcycles that it has to have outdated technology even though it's a new bike, to be relevant to the buyers. It's insane. Get with the program. It's not 1972 anymore. It's 2018 and bikes are so much better. Don't pine after some bygone era. Be so excited that motorcycles are a lot better than they used to be. Motorcycling in the 60s was a nightmare. How far would you really go? on a 61 Bonneville with confidence. How far would you really want to travel, you know? And in that time as well, when you could be stranded somewhere and parts weren't around and all of that, and we didn't have overnight shipping for parts and all of it, how far would you really want to go? The folks that were doing long trips and riding every day, they were heroes. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, think about this. Even back in the 80s, you know, I, I think I brought this up before, but you be watch, you'll watch movies and somebody will get in a car and they'll be trying to escape and they'll turn the key and it didn't kick over the first time and they kept turning it and all of a sudden they'd flooded the engine. And it seems kind of weird today, but it was totally believable because it happened all the fucking time. Because vehicles were awful in the past. Right. Now, imagine you're on a 60s Bonneville, and now, let's say we're in the 70s, and the bike's 10 years old, you know, and it takes, hopefully, your local mechanic has the parts on hand, but if he doesn't, it's going to be two weeks or more for that part to ship. And you're going to either have to pay him an ass load of money or work on it, on it yourself. And this is back when tools were shitty, back when all sorts of your gear would be shitty. What are the odds that as a young person riding a Bonneville that you could afford a Bonneville and a car? Like, <laughs> very little. Right. So, even if you have a Bonneville and you're chasing that dream, it's not authentic. It's not as ridiculous and as hard as it was to do at the time. You know, just, just be grateful that you live in the present where motorcycles are amazing. Well, here's an idea too. Since the late nineties or mid nineties, you know, there's been another era in bikes, but really since probably about 2004, five or six when even Harley went fuel injected from about 2006 to now, there's been another golden era of bikes where everything, not everything, but a lot of things have really been brought up to date and there's a whole new style around the gear, a whole new styling around the bikes. We are in a golden age of bikes right now. 
if you're looking back and thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to be like these guys from the 60s because that was such a great age. Well, I don't know. What would you think about guys back in the 60s that were trying to relive like the 1890s in motorcycles? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Why don't you just sort of live right now and embrace this era and just know that people are going to look back and think, man, I wish I could have been part of that. Right. You know, bikes are going to go electric soon. What, you know, uh, why don't you just embrace the absolute pinnacle of the internal combustion engine right now? Because you might not be able to that much longer. For sure. Yeah. I mean, imagine, I mean, also think back to like the late eighties, early nineties, how many people in that era were pining after non ABS cars? Yeah. (laughs) 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 We're we're in a game changing era right now. Like pining after non ABS cars. (laughs) I don't know why that really got me. Who was like, what's with this bullshit ABS? I know how to stop my car. I don't need this shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Until the first day it got icy. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, What? moving on. What's on, What else is on the list of things that need to go? Air cooling. Yeah, well, we've already touched on this. Um, you know, I think it's fine if you want to have some fins on the engine and, you know, make it like it's 10 to 15, 20% air cooled. And it's also liquid cooled. So maybe you don't need to have as large a radiator, as large a reservoir of cooling, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, you, you air cool as well. You know, it's efficient. There's nothing wrong with that, but relying solely on air cooling in this day and age is a bad idea because as soon as something's completely air cooled, it's a shitty commuter. Traffic's worse than it ever was. You know, you can't just sit at stoplights in the middle of July in the city. Your bike's going to overheat. Ride a CB750 through the city in July in stop and go traffic and see how well that works out for you. I'll tell you mm-hmm. right away. It doesn't. Especially, well, yeah, I mean, I remember on, on the CB1000... If you once you got into stop and go traffic, your your right foot that you had to keep on the brake the whole time, your 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 two exhausts ran right under the foot peg, and when that engine started to overheat, your feet got hot, like unbearably hot through your boots. It was. It's not a good time. It's not a good time. I mean, you can endure it, but why if you don't have to? Right. It's another distraction. It's another worry. You've got enough things to worry about with all the idiots on the road. Well, the other thing is once you get some, once you get liquid cooling and you've got the reliability of liquid cooling, you get to do lots of other fun things like up the compression ratio. Uh, you get to... Um, you get to do more RPM. Yeah, you raise the RPMs. You raise the compression ratio. You can... Uh, fuck what was i gonna say um yeah it's it's more you get to put a fan on it because it's efficient to have a fan over a radiator which makes 
commuting and stop and go traffic bearable. It, yeah, you get to up your compression, you get more power. It's a more reliable engine that will do more miles. And you also get to actually lower the octane rating of your fuel because the manufacturer doesn't have to put a higher octane rating because the engine's less likely to blow up because it's stuck outside in 110 degree weather in stop and go traffic. So the, the chances of knocking are much lower. Right. Well, and you know, also you can, you know, on a modern bike, you can know things like the exact temperature of your engine. Cause it's, cause it's fuel injected. It's got a little mini computer. It's got temperature sensors and you can know what the damn temperature of the engine is rather than just guessing or going, well, Normally, when my leg starts feeling uncomfortable, that's when I know the engine's starting to overheat a little bit. Right. <laughs> you could just know what it is. So, the one other thing I have uh-huh. is not a feature that needs to die, but something that people aren't putting on these retro bikes. As far as I know, besides the XSR, okay, which is... We don't need to have a bare set of controls. We can have our EFI and fuel mappings on our bikes. Well, yeah, because you can have classically styled, you know, cans for your controls, but there's no reason whatever electronics and luxuries you want to put into that can't be put into that. Right. I think the old school dials have a a really enduring look that's worth keeping around. And the way everything else is going to these all-in-one units, there's a way to have best of both worlds there. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I love old analog dials. And, you know, it, there's something cool about knowing there's just a little cable spinning around and that's making it happen and, and everything. But, you know, the light bulbs in the back of them aren't the greatest <laughs> A nice little weatherproof LCD screen is pretty good to have. I did have a, a solid three months where I didn't get around to replacing the bulb in the Speedo of the CB1000. So after 9.30, you were just guessing at your speed? No. Um, what I ended up happening is I got really good at knowing what gear, what speed I was doing based on the gear I was in and the RPMs I was doing. Oh, there you go. Because first gear was 8 miles an hour per 1,000 RPM. Second gear was 9.5. Third was 11. Fourth was 13. And then fifth was 15. <laughs> so I just got really good at doing the math on the fly. And that's how I, I measured my speed. Right. And these are things, you know, you get in tune with your machine. And you learn these things. And you learn how to do them. But... Why should you have to in 2018? Right. Or how about we throw a bone to new riders that are just trying to learn to ride the damn thing. They don't need to worry about all this other nonsense. So that's all I got. That's all you got? That's about all I've got on this, too. Um, basically, I think if you're chasing an old, an old vintage bike dream, just get a vintage bike. Right. You know, why why demand and confuse the manufacturers over this new stuff? I'm glad Kawasaki finally hit on this Z900 RS. Hopefully we'll see, you know, Triumph do something like this soon. Hopefully we'll see 
all the manufacturers do something like this soon because, yeah, none of us want to get rid of the look of the old bikes. But why compromise it so badly that you might as well just be buying an old bike? And you're paying new prices for it as well. Mm-hmm. Why? Why are you paying? You know, why are you paying nine and a half thousand dollars for something that doesn't have ABS, that doesn't have dual front discs, that doesn't have an LED headlight, that doesn't have fuel mappings, that isn't liquid cooled? Why are you? It doesn't have fuel injection. I don't know how many today don't have fuel injection. That is getting that is definitely getting rarer and rarer. There's still a few holdouts. There are still two stroke bikes you can buy. Well, that's they're mostly off roads and dual sports, but again, they it's serve stupid. a purpose. I I highly doubt that they really do. Dirt bikes, four stroke dirt bikes, except for are the EX five fifty. That's just that's just fucking retarded. I hate. I don't know why it exists. Yeah, it, it exists because KTM had to get their dick out and wave it around in front of Yamaha and Husqvarna. And well, the motorcycle Honda. industry loves to drag its ass with development. So if it wasn't for EPA regulations, I think we would still have some two-stroke road bikes. I really do. Not probably. Kawasaki and Suzuki would still be cranking them out. Kawasaki was the king of two-strokes. They were drug-kicking and screaming into four-strokes by the Clean Air Act. And we already covered what a nightmare that <laughs> was for them. And and what what they had to overcome <laughs> to do it. And what insane things they made in getting us to where we are. Well, in fairness, like motorcycles are a hobby to Kawasaki. They're used to making battleships. Yeah, battleship <laughs> diesel engines and uh, all sorts of crazy things these are these are an amusement to kawasaki they do it well though i i have to say you know honda is my jam but kawasaki is a very close second their their philosophy has always been around performance it's always been around you know sort of nuts bikes these are the folks that gave us the ninja the gpc the top gun bike the h2 the h2 the new h2 like you know Kawasaki makes the world of motorcycles fun, and I I appreciate them a lot. And they and they've they've I think they've given us the blueprint for the neo retro now. I do too. Yeah. That you know, um, yeah, like that SCR bike from Yamaha, that version of the Bolt. I, it doesn't do anything for me. I don't think um, the FZs. You know, some people kind of think they're in that neo retro category. I no, don't it's think the, they the are. XSR. Oh, the XSR. There we which go. Which is built on the same platform. There we go. That's the confusion. I don't think those strike the right kind of chord for me. I think they're good. I think, but they they're they're not they're not retro bikes with modern styling. They're kind of they're modern bikes that are halfway between a modern styling and a retro styling. It's like as if the 80s it's didn't exist. It's all compromise. It's as if the 80s was like an exact middle ground between the really classic bikes and modern bikes. And they just like made this meld of it. There's nothing good about the 80s, even in motorcycles. Wait, except for the VMAX. Take it back. The VMAX <laughs> is great. But uh, beyond that, I can't think of a really great... Well, and, and the Ninja, obviously. But besides that... 
Don't forget, not... don't forget the Nighthawk 750 SC. I love the Nighthawk 750 SC, but it's kind of terrible. Oh, it is. Well, it's not iconic. It it steals looks from you know the the uh, Kawasaki Eddie Lawson bikes. It's derivative of a whole bunch of things. It's sort of just like the last effort of Honda to try to squeeze something out of the CB750 concept. And it, it was, really died there. It, I, I don't know. It's a cool bike. It, it was the CB750 slowly, you know, shrinking into the night and going out with a whimper. <laughs> I love the bike, but I don't think it's historically as significant as some people might think. Yeah, it's not particularly rare or collectible or expensive, but I don't know. I, I love it. But again, it's it's an it's an 80s bike with all the problems of 60s bikes. This is true. There's nothing there's nothing there to make it really any better. Oh, I do have one last thing that needs to go and thankfully is really starting to happen. What's that? Two valve mo- two valve cylinders. Uh <laughs> Well, okay. Uh you say that, but again, um there's something to be said for the overbuilt understressed motor. So I do. I used to. I used to complain a lot about how little uh, power Harley's got for the size of their motors, and I really sort of understood the concept. And it was really Moto Guzzi and learning more about Guzzi that, or Guzzi, however you want to say it, um, they do the same thing, and um, a lot of European manufacturers did the same thing. and all the metric cruisers do the same thing. Just get yourself a great big motor. Just make it two valve. Just, you know, give yourself a huge buttload of torque. Make it low compression. Make it so that thing will do 300,000 miles if you want it to. Just change the oil and it goes and goes. It's not a performance machine. It's a long-term distance machine. So in that context, I'm cool with two valve motors. Outside of that, I don't know. And you're right, it is going. I mean, Honda's even got like five valve designs for single cylinders now. They've had them for a while. Right. And they recently upgraded the the Goldwing, which is now a 24 valve motor in right. a motorcycle. 24 valve motor. Which That's... is not as... well. Well, this is also Honda... Who back in the eighty or in the nineties had the NR, which was a thirty-six valve in line four with no, it was a V four. Well, not even no, it was yeah, but it had eight valves per cylinder. Well, right, but it also had two, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, connecting rods per piston. So really, what they did. Because they were, <laughs> they were oval pistons. Were they? I thought they were even like weirdly elliptical. Like they might have been. They were. They weren't even like real ovals. And they were basically trying to. Well, this is. They were trying to squeeze a V eight into a V four. Yeah, this is classic Honda trying to cheat. And yeah, in a way that only Ducati pulls off Ducati, that well anymore. Ducati has picked up the mantle, but. If you go back and look at the, some of the most weird motorcycle engines of all time, they're almost all Hondas. And they're all variations of 
Honda trying to get around formula race regulations. Yeah. Things like a V8 two-stroke 125cc motor. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have like five cylinders, six-cylinder motors. Oh, oh, yeah. Because they weren't allowed to have a V6 anymore, they decided to make a V5. Oh, the Rossi's V5 was amazing. I think he won like back-to-back championships on a V5, I believe. And it was like an 800 as well. Yeah, if you're ever wondering why uh, race rules and homologation rules are so strict and there's so little creativity you can apply today, it's because of Honda. Yeah. (laughs) Honda just had insane resources to throw at whatever. If it was possible, they would try it in the 60s, 70s. Till today, really. But it's really Ducati now that just pretty much just all out cheats. Yeah. Uh, most most obvious in the arrow that they're working on. Cuz what the 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 new fairings in GP had to be like in co- the if they wanted to have winglets or something it had to be completely incorporated into the fairing. Yes. But now they have these bolt-on parts. And I don't understand how that meets the rules or regulations, or maybe they've just gone. Uh, it's apparently, too what are you going to do? Apparently, there's a guy who is in charge of enforcing <laughs> these regulations, and he might be on Ducati payroll. There's a good chance. <laughs> <laughs> or I think they they managed to like beat him into a corner in terms of like how he was interpreting the rules which are kind of vague oh and i love how um, all they've got they found all sorts of technicalities in order to have these modular winglet designs and well, keep them every time dorna announces new rules Gigi delinia just loses his shit openly in public about how <laughs> inconsistent the rules are <laughs> It's wonderful. It's so Italian, and it's so formula racing in a classic way. Yeah, a lot of people think, like, you know, new racing's different than it was back in the old days. I don't think racing's really changed that much. You've still got a whole bunch of crazy hotheads, thrill seekers, people pushing the limits of technology just as much as they always were. Money laundering and tax shelters. Money laundering and tax shelters. Yeah, it's it's just as corrupt and insane and fun as it's always been. I, I'm not sure. Formula One is not as good as it used to be, but they're having a tough time with rules, and I think they'll figure it out and it'll get fun again. But motorcycle racing is the best it's ever been right now. And I think a lot of motorsports, really, in general, is as good as it's ever been right mm-hmm. now. I don't know. Well, as expensive as it is to do, it's never been more accessible. That's true. It's it's still not that accessible, though. I mean, if you want to take your if you want your kid to to race go karts, you're talking like twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year, mostly in tires. Yeah, well, and that's assuming that you are the pit crew, right? that you know how to fix this thing, and you have the time to take off work to drive across the freaking country to go to all these races and things. That's assuming all of that, so, Mm. you know. But it is sort of fun because not every kid gets to try it. We don't have necessarily the largest pool of talent in racing so every once in a while we still get the valentino rossi's 
and all that that just come along and just dominate and blow everybody away. I mean, when was the last time there was a an NFL quarterback who was so clearly way above the rest? You know, people talk about Tom Brady right now being the best quarterback, but like by what margin really? Right. It, there are a lot of small margin that margins that he's the best by. He's also got Belichick behind him and a whole team behind him that's been had excellent draft after excellent draft. Just not in terms of the picks that they got, but in terms of their strategy and their trades. But there hasn't been anyone. There's no one person you can point to who just comes along and is clearly on. In the top 0.1% is still head and shoulders above everybody else. Right. Yeah. Okay. We got anything else to talk about? Uh, That's all I brought to the table. We're at about an hour and a half now, so I think we can probably call this one quits. Thankfully, we saved episode three. This is episode four. We'll be signing out now. Let's do the outro. I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm, Cold 